The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC is available online at www.overlandpark.cc. Uh, good to see you today. Um, good to see you in light of the time change. Man, I was feeling it there before I had to come up here on the platform, just kind of feeling a little, whoa, man, that, uh, that hour to take away, changing it all the time. But one thing we know um, and believe is that the Word of God never changes. And that's sort of what we've been looking at in this, this series as we've been going through um, solo scriptura. And, and by that we mean scripture is the perfect and only standard of spiritual truth, and it reveals infallibly all that we must believe in order to be saved and all that we must know uh, in order to glorify God. So scripture, no more, no less. That's all we need. Like one of the things we say at the church is we're never going to ask you to do more than what the Bible asks you to do, um, and we're never going to challenge you to do less than what it asks you to do. No more, no less. And so when we look at the Word of God, when we begin to um, view the Bible itself, there are, are three ways to look at the Bible. And one is that it is the Word of God. Uh, two is that it is the Word of man. And three is that it's the Word of God and the Word of man. And so classically, the evangelical view throughout church history has been, it is the Word of God. So for centuries, that is what people, the church, has recognized and believed. But right now, we're living in an age where a lot of people um, would, would side with, no, that's just the Word of man. It's just a book. It's the Word of man. But more dangerously is the number three, where people are trying to say that it's a combination of both. It's the Word of God, and it is the Word of man. And this is dangerous, and it is what we're dealing with, even in our own community. Um, very large ministry in our community would line up right there. It's the Word of God, it's the Word of man, and it takes scholarship in order for us to um, understand what is the Word of God and what is the Word of man. Now, what is the problem with that? The problem is the scholar becomes God. The scholar begins to be the one who tells you what you are to believe and what you are not to believe. And classically, throughout church history, that is not what has been done. What has been done is people, even in the early church, were encouraged over and over to study the Scriptures to see what they say. Study the Scriptures to check what I'm saying. Even the Bereans did it with the Apostle Paul. And so we have to be careful with that because this replaces God and really elevates the scholar and puts him in the position of God to make decisions as opposed to God miraculously being able to preserve his word through um, inspiration of the Holy Spirit and, and preserving it for us over all of this time with all of this harmony that it has. It's an amazing um, thing that we look at the Bible and see the unity that it possesses in the message that it tells, which is the story of man's fall and, and God's redemption of man. That is the story of the Bible in a nutshell. Like there's so many more complexities, but if you read the whole thing, it doesn't matter which book you're reading, you're going to see this common theme written by all of these different authors, that it is the redemption of man by loving God. And we see a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament we see a picture of God's wrath in the Old Testament. We see pictures of salvation in the Old Testament. We see the gospel. We see all this stuff. And it is the story of God saying to us um, that he loves us. And he has, he's made a way for us to be in relationship with him. And so we've, we've looked at some very important things. I want to say to you as a believer, if you haven't been here for this series, you need to go back and watch 
every sermon. Not because I want you to hear me speak, okay? But because I believe it's one of the most important sermon series I've ever preached in my life. Okay? For 20 years of ministry, right now, in this day and age, in our community, it carries that much weight. What a person believes about the Word of God. And we've talked about canonization. What does that mean? How do we get the 66 books of the Bible? Well, we didn't have a group of men several years ago sit around a table and go through some manuscripts and say, I like this one, I don't like that one. That's not what happened. Even early on during the New Testament time, when it was being written, the church recognized the power and authority of the New Testament documents. The 27 books that we have in our Bible today, they were being circulated. Write this to the church of Ephesus. Here is a letter to the church at Corinth. After it is read there, send it to this church. That started happening immediately among eyewitnesses of Jesus. People who knew him personally wrote these documents. They were being circulated among the church. And within, within a few hundred years, it was recognized by the church. Um, early on, the church fathers, you know, this is a fascinating thing. If we had no manuscripts, zero manuscripts, if none of them existed, we could, re and we could reconstruct the entire Bible with quotes from the early church fathers. Arrhenius and, and some of these other guys who, who uh, Eusebius that gave us, like they were quoting from the scripture so you could take their works that they wrote from and you could reconstruct the whole thing. But we already know because we learned um, that it is a reliable document, that there is no ancient document in history that compares to the reliability of the Bible as a historical document, thousands of manuscripts, no comparison in the time gap between the first copy and the original when the original was written. There's no comparison of any ancient document in the world as we look, uh, looked at some of the different documents and compared them to the reliability of the Bible. It is a reliable historical document. As a matter of fact, Luke is an incredible historian gives dates, gives names of leaders, gives names of, of people who were in power, which was not an easy thing to do. It's not like he could just go to a library and check all this out or get on Google and, and write it down. Like Wikipedia was not there, right? Like he had, to, he had to go and ask people. He had to get accounts. And they're all right. And he does it with an amazing accuracy as he writes um, the book of Luke and the book of Acts as we study him. We, we learn about the reliability of the Bible. We learn how God speaks to us, that he speaks to us through revelation. There's general revelation where God speaks to all of humanity through creation and nature. The people can look and, and, and hear God in a general way and see and, and learn from God's re revelation in the nature around us. And then we learn that he speaks to us specifically, and how does God speak to us specifically? First, through history. Like, it's his story, and all of history is about the, the, the story of God to man. And that's why the Israelites are so important. It's because God chose this people to hammer out in history who he was, okay? Um, and so we look at that, and we see that God gave us history. And then the second way that God specifically speaks and reveals to us is writing, and that's why the Bible becomes so very important. And then we learn that in God's revelation that he uses his word and the Holy Spirit to help the Bible move from just a historical book to a living document that brings about transformation in the lives of people. 
We learned um, last week about inspiration and revelation um, and regeneration. It's a lot of shun, right? The inspiration of the Holy Spirit that was God-breathed. We studied the very, the, the very word, what it meant was that God breathed into it. It wasn't inspired like a mental stimulation that a person might have to write a song, but that God was behind it. He breathed into the men, and they wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit the things that God wanted them to write. No doubt, their personalities are woven in that. We see uh, that they're different. Their, Their writing styles are different, but God was behind it all, and what was he doing? He was preserving through specific revelation the history writing it down using men with incredible unity over a period of thousands of years so that we could have his word revealed to us and know how to learn about him. We learned that um, regeneration, again, is, is when a person is born again and the Bible, like, it comes alive. The veil is lifted for them and they begin to understand it. And so today, um, we're going to look at, we're going to begin to look at evidence to support that the word of God is the inspired, inerrant truth of God, that the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God. It is inspired. So the next couple of weeks, starting today, we're going to look at some evidence to back that up, to hold it up, okay? And so the first source we're going to go to is Jesus, right? Let's go right to the top. What did Jesus think about the Bible? That's very important because there is a popular teacher in our day saying you interpret Scripture through the lens of Jesus, but the only lens he wants to use is love. And so he tries to paint it as, oh, we got to love, we got to love, we got to love. Well, sometimes love has some hard things in it. Like I love my kids, and sometimes I have to discipline them and do things I don't really like to do because I know it is what is best for them. And so love is not always this mushy thing, all right? Sometimes the most unloving thing you can do is be a mushy parent to your kids. As a matter of fact, the scripture says that if you don't discipline them, you don't love them. And so sometimes we don't want the scripture to discipline us. And so as we look at this, what does Jesus think about the Bible? Well, first of all, Jesus believed the Bible was the word of God. Like when we look at what Jesus thought about the Bible, if now this is very important because if Jesus is who he claims to be, who the church has always confessed him to be, which is God in the flesh. Like, that's what we believe. He was God in the flesh, he died, he rose from the dead, and he has offered salvation to humanity, that we are in a sinful state, enemies of God, and if we will yield to him as he draws us, then we can receive him, be born again, and be in a right relationship with him. So that's who we believe he is. So if he is, in fact, God in the flesh, then we must accept what he says. Amen? Like, obviously. Um, If he's not, we should have all slept in this morning. So does Jesus actually say the Scripture is the Word of God? Jesus taught the highest of all possible views of Scripture. Let's look at it. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. What did Jesus say? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to um, fulfill them. I've not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Not the smallest letter. 
He's referring to the iota and the tittle. Um, and they are the smallest letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, the iota was like a comma. It represents, we get our, we, when we transliterate it, we get the word I or the letter Y. And, and it's just a little bit, instead of being written on the bottom, it was written up high, okay? And it is the smallest letter that Jesus could have referred to, and he says, even it won't pass away until all of it is accomplished. And so when we look at what Jesus thought about the Bible, we can immediately begin to see that he regarded it as the Word of God, and not only did he regard it as the Word of God, he believed it was binding on him. That's very important. When we talk about interpreting the Word through the lens of Jesus, Jesus believed the Word was binding on him. And so as we look at, um, I, I want to encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 4. And let's look at this very famous thing that happens in Jesus' life. It says in chapter 4, verse 1, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And so he's, he's beginning to tempt Jesus, the God-man, about his identity. Who are you really? And so as he brings this temptation, notice how Jesus responds. It is written. Now, if you just go through your New Testament and you just write down every time Jesus says, it is written, it will blow you away. It is written. What is he referring to? He is referring to the, 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 the writing of the scriptures of the prophets and, and, and the law of Moses. And these were the two books that were preserved long before Jesus even came into uh, a being. Before he was born, the Old Testament was already recognized by the Jewish people. It was preserved. And it's so powerful because like when we, one of the things when, when God gave Moses the law, guess what they did with it? They put it in the Ark of the Covenant. It was immediately preserved. So throughout time, and so Jesus is referring to the Old Testament and he begins to quote from Deuteronomy. It is written that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down and watch what the devil does. For it is written. Like he knows the word too. Sadly, many of us don't. But he does. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift uh, you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So what does Jesus say? Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So Jesus is doing what? He's interpreting Scripture in light of Scripture, which is a fundamental law of hermeneutics, biblical interpretation. We always look at Scripture to make interpretations about Scripture. And so it would be very easy to say, well, it does say that. I'm going to jump off here and see what God does. But he knew the Word. And he studied, and he knew that it was not okay for him to do that. 
And so he uses the word. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And all this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so when we begin to study that, we see that Jesus believed the word was binding on his life that he needed to yield to it. And, and, and he says, this is what the word says. Now notice what he does not say. He does not say, well, this is what the law says, meaning legally what the government says. He does not say, this is what culture says. Well, the people know I'm probably hungry and it would be unloving of myself if I didn't turn this stone into bread. So therefore, the most loving thing that I could do is to turn it into bread and eat it. That's what culture would say, would it not? How, how unkind and unloving of Jesus of himself not to turn the stone into bread and eat it when he had the power to do so. What was he doing? He was yielding to the word and recognizing that his sustaining ability did not come from the sustenance from which he would eat, but from the father from which he came. Jesus does not say, well, I feel hungry, so therefore... I think it would be permissible to God that I turn this rock into a nice loaf of warm bread. Why not turn that sand into some butter, right? He didn't say that based on his feelings. He did not use philosophy. What did he do? It is written. He yielded to the word of God. On what basis did Jesus cleanse the temple? We like to talk about that passage. Jesus went into the temple and he, he cleared it out. On what basis? Well, look at Mark chapter 11, verse 17. As he taught them, he said, is it not written? What? Is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Okay, so what is he doing? He's once again leaning on the written word. In John chapter 10, Jesus claimed to be, after he taught the famous um, passage about being the good shepherd, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. He claimed to be one with God. And after he claimed to be one with God, they were going to stone him. They, the, the, the story says that they literally picked up stones and they were going to, to kill him with stones. And this is what he says in verse 34 of chapter 10. Jesus answered them. This is such an important verse in your Bible. Jesus answered them. Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, underline this if you're taking notes, and Scripture, this is out of the mouth of Jesus, Scripture cannot be set aside. Amen, Jesus. You want to interpret something through the lens of Scripture? Then don't set any Scripture aside, even the ones that you don't like. Like if there was some scripture that I could set aside, you know what I would set aside today? I would just go through the Bible and set aside everything that it taught about hell. But I don't get to do that. Why? Because I'm not God. I belong to God. I'm a servant of the Lord. I'm a servant of his, and I'm a servant of his word. And my job is to be um, uh, one who proclaims the hope that we find in the word and the truth of the word, and I do not get to set it aside. And so again, he says, um, if he, if he called them gods who, to whom the world of, word of God came and Scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? 
do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. So here's what I would submit to you today. Make no mistake, Jesus believed the Scripture to be God's Word. All of it. Like he's quoting it from everywhere. Here's second, the second thing, second piece of evidence regarding what Jesus thought about the Bible. Jesus saw his life as the fulfillment of Scripture, and he submitted to it. So, like, when Jesus looks at his whole purpose, he sees it as fulfillment of what the Scripture actually is. He starts his ministry with a quote from the prophet Isaiah. Okay? So, let's just look at it. In Isaiah chapter 61 is where he's quoting, but we're going to look at Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And everybody was looking at him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What is he doing? He's saying, I am the Messiah. Now, this is a really cool thing. Um, And and again, we're going to get into prophecy um, probably next week. We're going to talk about some prophecy. But this is a faith boost for you. As Jesus is quoting from the book of Isaiah, he stops before he reads verse 2. Why does he do that? And, and why did the Jews get so confused about, why did they miss it that Jesus was actually the Messiah? Because there are so many passages about prophecy uh, in the Old Testament about the Messiah being a conquering king. But what they did not realize is that there was a dual prophecy going on. There was prophecy of his first and second coming. Jesus stopped short of verse 2 because verse 2 is about his second coming. So he does not say today verse 2 is fulfilled. He stops at verse 1 and says deliverance is here. Verse 2 talks about the wrath of God coming, and he doesn't prophesy about that because that will come back when he comes as a conquering king that we learn about um, from the Old Testament and New Testament prophecies about Jesus' second coming as um, the, the, the warrior king and what is coming out of his mouth. The, the, the flaming sword, which is what John the Revelator tells us, the word of God. And so, like, everything is so rooted in the Word, and it is such a vital importance. So it's encouraging to me to see that even in this moment, in this very prophecy that Jesus stops as he's saying this part is fulfilled, he is recognizing that the second part will not be fulfilled until later. In John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40, and then skipping down to verses 45 through 47, we find something else about um, Jesus and, and, and lo- looking at the Bible as fulfillment of uh, of his life. He says, you, talking to the Pharisees, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And then going down to verse 45, 
But do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he what? Wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Again, the specific revelation of God. The only way we can know anything about God is through the specific revelation about the history that God has left behind in humanity, and he's written it down in Scripture. And Jesus is saying, how would you know if, you didn't, if it were not written down and you're not even believing what it was written for you? And so he's seeing his life as fulfillment of Scripture. And what is fascinating, again, about this, this passage here is that the Word of God is, will, is what will be used as the accuser in judgment. And the last thing that I would ever want to be guilty of is mishandling the Word of God. It is the very thing that I will be standing in judgment of is what I did with Jesus, which is what the Word teaches me about. Now, as a teacher of the law, the Word also, or the, or the Word of God, the, the Word also tells me that I will be held to a more strict judgment than you. Like, man, I that's kind of nerve-wracking, and one of the reasons I work so hard to rightly divide the truth and, and, and teach what it says, even the passages that are not popular. I mean, sometimes I go through a passage, and it's in what we're studying in a book, and I have to preach on it, and you just don't, you just don't know that I go home and feel like I don't have any friends. Like, and it's just hard, man. The devil just beats me up and says, man, people don't believe that, and you just blah, 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 and I'm like, well... It is what it is. I am a servant of the Lord. I'm a bond slave of His. And I don't get to um, supersede what I don't like that He has written for me. Do you see the problem? Like, how can we trust what is written about salvation if we don't trust the stuff that is written about who God is and what He says as He executes judgment upon the world? If we change any of it, it's It's worthless. And said, well, Jimmy, you've done a good job today about the Old Testament. What, what about the New Testament? Jesus foresaw the writing of the New Testament. Like he foresaw it during his time of ministry. He made provision by choosing and authorizing the apostles. Remember when I told you um, that when the, the early church fathers were going through the process of recognizing um the authority of Scripture and which books to trust and which books to reject. Know this, like heresy started immediately. If you read the New Testament, you'll see Paul say, don't pay any attention to what those guys over there are teaching because it is wrong and false. And guess what they were not? Apostles. You don't ever find an apostle like doing that to another apostle. Do they have disagreements? Sure, but they always end in unity and they, they say you can trust what this brother is writing. You can trust what that brother is writing. Peter refers to Paul's writings. He says, I know they're heavier and harder to understand, but you can trust them as the Scriptures. They refer to Luke as the Scriptures. So they're already referring to it as the Word of God, even in the midst of the time that they were alive and it was being circulated. Who were these people? They were the ones chosen by Jesus himself. And so in order for the one of the 27 books of the Bible to be included in your Bible that you have today, the New Testament, those 27 books, they had to be written or authorized by an apostle, 
like James, the brother of Jesus, was not an apostle. But his book, the epistle of James, was recognized by the apostles, so it was included. Luke was not an apostle, but he was acquainted with apostles. He, he, he was with Peter. He was with Paul. And he was used of God to write the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And so he had connection with the apostles. And then we have, of course, the works of the apostles themselves. And so it was very important that they had connection um, uh, to the, uh, uh, they had apostolic connection in order to be included. And so Jesus, in choosing these 12 guys, knew one of them was going to fall. And in the choosing of the apostle Paul and, and literally appearing to him on the road to Damascus, he was making a way for the specific revelation of God to be written down in such a way that we could trust it. This is why these guys could do the miraculous. Listen, if, 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 you, if you get sick, like one of our dear brothers, Bob Fowler, is, 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 has been diagnosed with cancer, and he's having a tough time right now. And so he's sick. And so I, I, we went over there, me and some of the guys, and we prayed for him, and I asked the Lord to heal him. Okay? And I prayed for a healing. But I don't know if the Lord will choose to heal him or not. If I were one of the original apostles, I would have been able to walk in there and heal that brother. Why would I have been able to do that? So that what I wrote down could be trusted by the church. Because my power came not from myself, but from heaven. And it was clearly recognizable. This is why these guys could do this. Now, if you read your Bible, you'll notice that they had the ability to do things, so much so that Peter, even once, as it's just talked about as his shadow passed by others and the shadow fell on people, they were being healed. But as you see that the New Testament is getting to its conclusion and the age of Revelation is being closed, the Bible talks about the perfect will, will close like as, as it gets to the time that the, all of the word is written, they are not able to do the miraculous like they were in the beginning. Why? Because God supernaturally empowered them to do that for a season in order to preserve specific revelation, just like he did with the prophets of old in the Old Testament. These guys were chosen to carry forth the message and the truth of the word of God. Listen to what he says in John chapter 4, verses 25 through 26, before he's going to be crucified. He says, all this, talking about all of the, 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 the teaching he's taught about the Holy Spirit and all that he's done with them the previous three years, all this I have spoken while still with you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. And what will he do? He will remind you of everything I have said to you. Remember what happens before the Holy Spirit comes? They're all in hiding. They're terrified. But when he comes, boom, Peter just starts preaching out in public and men start getting saved. Things start coming out of their mouths and out of their hearts that they are recalling that Jesus has taught them because of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit empowering them. Even in this moment, the, the, the preaching is to be done in the power and demonstration of the Spirit, not like a lecturer. It is to be something that is anointed of God. And sometimes things will come out of my mouth that I have no idea they're coming to you on a Sunday morning. And it is because the work of the Spirit is reminding me something that Jesus has taught me at some point in my life that the word uh, the, the Lord himself wants you to hear and be proclaimed in this particular day. 
And so like, that's what is, is to go on through um, the preaching of the word, but through the writing of the word, like the Lord was helping them to remember what he taught them in verses um, 12 through 15 of chapter 16 in, in the gospel of John. He says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. Like you couldn't take it all in, he says. He says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. What does that mean? It means that the, the Jesus is foreseeing before the writing of the New Testament. He's foreseeing that it is going to come. It is a shift in everything. The, the New Testament is the new covenant of God. What was the old covenant? The sacrificial system. Why do we not practice the sacrificial system anymore? Is it because culturally is irrelevant? No, it is because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. And he fulfilled it and established the new covenant that we don't live under the dispensation of the law anymore. We live under the age of grace, and we now have the priesthood of the believer. That is why it is not necessary for us to have a Levitical priesthood. We are the priests of God because we are now the ark of God, which represents the presence of God in the Old Testament. The presence of God was in the ark. The word of God was in the ark. The hope of God was in the ark, and they carried it around, and they moved forth to conquer the promised land. What do we do as followers? followers of Jesus. The hope of God is in our heart, the ark. The spirit of God is in our heart. The presence of God is in our heart, the ark of God. And we carry forth the gospel, the new covenant, the message of salvation to the world as we march around and live the promised life. That's what's going on. And so like when we start to say, well, culturally, this like when Paul wrote that, what are we saying? Jesus said, I'm going to make known to you what I want you to receive. And we are beginning to toy with the very word of God that is the hope of the world. The apostles fulfilled their purpose by giving us the New Testament. The early church recognized their role by apostolicity as being the chief test as to whether or not something was included in the Biblia. The 66 books we have that we call the Bible. And so one might look at this and say, well, you're using circular reasoning to make your point that the Bible is inerrant. What is circular reasoning? Circular reasoning would be, hey, you would come up to me and say, hey, uh, have you, uh, is that, that sandwich shop down the street, Jersey Boys, is it any good? So yeah. Have you ever eaten there? No, but Shay told me it was a good place to eat. He said, all right. And so you went and found Shay and you said, hey, Shay, is that Jersey Boys, that sandwich shop down the road, is it a good place to eat? He said, yeah. And you said, have you ever eaten there? He said, no, but Jimmy told me it was a great place to eat. Like, there would be no, no, no way to conclude because we just went in a circle without either one of us being there. That's not what we're doing then. That's not what's happening in the argument that I just laid out for you. Because I'm not starting with the Bible is the inerrant word of God. I didn't start there. What I started with is that the Bible has historically reliable. It is a historical document that is reliable, that can be trusted, that is verified by archaeology, has manuscript evidence. We can look at it, and, and we can read it, and we can learn things from it. What does it do? It points to Jesus. 
So when we look at that historical document that was given to us, it points to Jesus. And what it point, as it points to Jesus, we can learn that it also, that Jesus at least believed that he was God. And if he was God, then he would have to teach truth. And he taught that the Bible was the word of God. So therefore, we believe the Bible because Jesus did. So Jesus has been to the sandwich shop is what I'm trying to say. Right? And so that's why it's, it's not a circular argument. Now, now, that's why we believe it is in Aaron is because Jesus is in it. So what is the big idea? The big idea is that Jesus thinks you should believe and follow the Bible. That's the big idea. Jesus thinks you should get your Bible out and read it. Why should you do that? Because he did, and you follow him. So you follow what he does. Jesus believes you should yield to the things the Bible teach. Why does, why does he believe that you should yield to the things the Bible teaches? Because he did, and he left it for you. And as you yield to it, guess what happens? You will learn more and more about freedom. And you will learn more and more about how tied you are to another world and not this one. And that's where you begin to live free. And so no longer does materialism have a hold on you. That it's, life is no longer about all that you can get and as high as you can climb and as much success as you can have. Life becomes about more that you understand about the truth of who God is. And the more the kingdom is unleashed in your life and you conquer more of the promised life like the Israelites were conquering the promised land. That more people join the kingdom of Jesus as a result of the way you're living your life. Not as a result of you... Um, manipulating them or anything else, but just a, a result of them literally watching the transformation that is taking place in you as you yield to the Word of God. Listen, all that I'm talking about, when I'm talking about transformation, like things can happen and you can learn and you can be challenged and you can be encouraged in church under the teaching of the Word as, you, as you've experienced this morning. But conquering the promised life must go beyond what you learn on Sunday morning. It must be something, as a matter of fact, the whole, the whole reason for me standing here today is because it went beyond Sunday morning for me. And, and the word got a hold of me in such a way that it just had to get out. And God started raising me up and using me to proclaim it. And the kingdom started getting advanced through my life. Is there anything special about me? I would say yes. Yes, there is. Jesus chose me. But Jesus will choose you too. That's all it is. That's it. It's no, it's no man like the Lord looks at me more favorably than he does anybody else. No. Like the Lord drew me unto himself and he said, I I want to choose you as one of my followers. And I yielded to his choice of me instead of rebelling against it. And the kingdom started advancing in my life. And the Lord started using me 
to advance the kingdom in others' lives. <laughs> That's why he said, Go ye thereforth and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's all about what we do with Jesus. And so I would, I would just challenge you today to, to take a look at your life and go, man, what, like, what am I living for? Like, what do I believe? And when you, when you really start to believe and own the fact that the Word of God is the Word, I mean, when I get up in the morning, I'm like, oh, I gotta, I gotta. it's not like a workout. Oh, I got to lift weights. It's more like breakfast for me. Man, I can't wait to get something to eat. I'm hungry. I've been sleeping all night, and that's hard work, right? <laughs> it is sometimes. The older you get, the harder it is. But I wake up and I go, man, I, I want to, what does God have for me today? And so I'm just going to open it up, man. Right now I've been eating the book of Revelation and just trying to like wrap my mind, like what is God saying to me from, from this chapter? And you say, Lord, what do you want to say to me today? And then, and then believing like the Lord is going to say something to me because this is how he speaks. This is, a, this is the only reason I know he exists. Is the, the, like I learn about Jesus in this word of God. And so the more I learn about it, the more I want to yield to it. And the more I yield to it, the more freedom rolls out in my life. And so like, what, man, <laughs> that's who we are as a church. We believe that Jesus is God in the flesh and died for mankind. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And we believe that God has placed us at 14800 Metcalf Avenue to hold this up as others would like to set parts of it aside. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at www.overlandpark.cc.